Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Rudy Marchese. It's uh, March 23rd, 2022. We're at Montanor State, Forest Grove. Rudy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get us started is why wine? Why wine? Well, um, I grew up in an Italian-American family where my father, grandparents all immigrated from northern Italy, and wine was kind of a big part of our life. Our grandfather... Uh, had made wine for years, uh, semi-professionally during Prohibition. You don't have to go into that. <laughs> and um, and then, of course, you know, half a dozen barrels a year for the extended family for many years. So it was a, a big part of our life, you know, the new vintage every year, the process and all of that. So um, that's where it started. And we had wine with meals. I think my first glass of wine might have been, you know, like five years old. My grandmother mixing it with soda, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And then an espresso, of course. <laughs> um, uh, so wine was just part of life, was part of our meals and part of food. And, uh, and you know, I was the kid that didn't drink Bud in college, but always had a gallon of a Red Mountain Burgundy or something like that. So <laughs> there was that. Uh, and then I guess it... it it did kind of hit me, uh, you know, I was in graduate school at Sonoma State in a completely different field, um, had a cabin on the Russian River, and uh, I was surrounded by vineyards, so I decided, well, hell, you know, I'm, I'm going to make some wine, so I, I, <laughs> I, I bought a bunch of Zinfandel, and... Um, by driving up into the vineyard and walking up to the manager and saying, how much do you want to fill my truck with Zin? You know, now that I think about it, <laughs> I've been a winery owner and, and you know, my precious fruit going out the door. But anyway, I didn't know any better at the time. And I, I called my grandfather and said, hey, what do I do now? I got all this fruit and fermented out a half a barrel of Zin in my cabin on the Russian River. And that, that was so much more fun than grad school. <laughs> So I decided to make a change of career then. And, um, you know, it was also in the early 70s and uh, Mother Earth News and Back to the Land and all that. I, I bought 50 acres with some friends up in the Sierras and uh, built a geodesic dome and all those sorts of things, you know. So I was right in the times. Um, and then I decided I wanted to move back east where I grew up mm-hmm. and uh, and found... Um, a property on the western edge of New Jersey, which seems pretty incongruous, but I had this, you know, kind of wild idea about uh, Giron on the east coast and whatever, you know. Uh, but anyway, started a vineyard there and um, had a lot of success with the wine initially and uh, and formed uh, a company in 1982 where we... Um, were one of the first farm wineries in New Jersey. Prior to that, they'd only had allowed one per million people, one winery per million people, you know. So the, in 82, the Farm Winery Act passed. We were allowed to, if you grew your own grapes, you could make wine. And I I started a winery called Alba Vineyard that I ran for 
you know, 15 plus years, uh, owned and ran. And, um, you know, that was a, a, an interesting learning experience. Very difficult place to grow grapes, you know, because it rains four inches a month in a hot, humid summer. But I developed a lot of good skills and, uh, and worked through that. And then, you know, I had two daughters, you, you know that. Mm-hmm. And um, when they needed to go to college, I needed to make more money than just, you know, my little cellar door winery that I was running. So I took a job with an import uh, uh, wholesale company that um, felt they needed a little more cred in the hands-on the wine world, so they hired me to, to run their fine wine division that they were just uh, creating. And that helped me um, just to to get out and have international experience. I was able to travel around the world visiting producers. I did all the wine education for... Um, for our sales team of up to about 20 salespeople and, uh, and just had a, a great deal of experience. I got into the Master of Wine course and studied in that for a few years. So it, that was a real important kind of turning point mm-hmm. from being a little local winemaker to uh, having a more global um, uh, experience. Mm-hmm. I also had some great opportunities, and it will tie into what we did at Montador. Back in 1988, I was, uh, <clears throat> I guess I was vice chairman or chairman or something of the New Jersey Wine Advisory Board, and we were given a grant to go to uh, Vinitaly as part of a U.S. delegation for presenting wines at Vinitaly, which you know, in and of itself was close to Newcastle and kind of laughable, I think, but... <laughs> Uh, because my family was from there, um, I had contacts, and we were very interested in finding the right varieties for mm-hmm. for New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So I was able to contact my uh, my sister's father in law, who's very active in in the oh created he created a uh, a regional preserve and you know kind of environmentalist guy. He was the mayor of our our dad's hometown and uh, got the weather data for all of northern Italy and was able to correlate that to something similar to what we had in our New Jersey locations and then set up um, um, appointments at five different research stations around New Jersey, which was, I mean, around northern Italy, which was really super fun and really educational. And I met some amazing people, Dr. Fregoni, who was head of the INOA at that time, uh, Dr. Scienza at uh, San Miguel, who's become like this one of the top guys in uh, gene sequencing and things like that. So um, I got a great education just on that trip, and that's why we grow to roll to go on the grind at Montador, you know. Um, anyhow, the, I, I did, the, did my time in wholesale, learned that end of the business, which I think is really important for anybody that ever is going to own a winery, you have to understand this distribution uh, world, which is a little different than you might think. But it gave me a real leg up mm-hmm. when I mm-hmm. finally got to Montador. And um, and then after I paid off all the college tuition for my girls, <laughs> I, I left wholesale, went back to my little winery. But I had been doing selling Oregon wines at our wholesale house in New Jersey and got to know a lot of Oregon wine people. And... Um, and the folks at Montenor asked me to to help them out um, with their. They wanted to 
develop national distribution. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that as a consultant, and I'd come out here, and I saw that they needed help in the vineyard, and you know, every time I came out, I did a little bit more, and eventually they hired me as the vice president of the company to oversee operations, and that kind of evolved into becoming president of the winery, even though I was commuting back and <laughs> forth. <laughs> uh, got a lot of frequent flyer miles, and still keeping the little New Jersey winery going at the same time. And then eventually, um, the Graham family, who owned the winery, started Montanor and owned it. They wanted to retire, and their kids didn't want to take on the winery, so I had the opportunity to buy Montanor from the Grahams, and that was back in the end of 2005. So I sold everything. I had a couple farms on the East Coast and sold them and moved out here, lock, stock, and barrel. No pun intended. So... <laughs> Well, when we come back, obviously, a lot of questions about Montanor itself, but yeah. uh, some questions about kind of the, the, along the way. So you mentioned, obviously, New Jersey, not a place people think of as as, as vineyard land, as wine yeah. territory. Tell me about the process of developing an industry there, developing what you can grow and how you how to sell a, a wine region that no one's ever really heard of before. How did you yeah. make it work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, of course, New Jersey's the butt of a lot of jokes, and, you know... <laughs> So we had a couple of challenges there, but um, you know we had the support of the Department of Agriculture, and and the the government in general. I was able to uh, fund my winery through a public bond issue, um, through the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, because they were like, "Really, a winery? We're used to just doing factories and processing plants. This sounds wonderful." So you know, I'm not sure if there's any other winery that's ever been funded with a public bond issue, but. That in itself was an experience. But you know, the Department of Ag, we, we formed within the Department of Ag, the Wine Advisory Board. Within the Department of Tourism, we formed the, uh, uh, the Governor's Tourism Council on Wine, which I served on all of those things. And we had um, a good little uh, industry organization, start, not unlike, you know, it used to be the Yamhill County, and then it became the Willamette Valley. Same sort of thing. It was the Hunterdon County wine growers, and it became the New Jersey wine growers, and we expanded it mm -hmm. as vineyards started being planted in the southern part of the state and created a nice statewide industry uh, organization. And um, I worked with uh, a really wonderful woman at, uh, at uh, Rutgers, uh, Dr. Goulart, and we... we um, we created an educational program like the Wine Symposium. Hell, that was 30 some odd years ago. And it's still going on today, you know. So we did things like that just to get the ball rolling. And then Pennsylvania and, of course, New York was very far ahead of us. So we, we kind of coattailed on their experiences. And, of course, the great educational programs that Cornell and, and, uh, and Penn State had going on. So, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of will <laughs> and a lot of youthful energy and it really got it going so now you know new jersey's got i don't know 60 wineries or something like that and it's it's going mm -hmm. it's happening yeah. what about with the, with the grapes themselves uh, was it a lot of trial and error or what, what, what was the ideas you had or the ideas you had for what would grow there and what, and what you could sell man you know it, well global warming has had a big impact on that so initially it was a lot of French hybrids, Marshall Foch, which was also here in Oregon, and uh, Vidal Blanc, Sable Blanc, things like that, you know. And I remember I felt that we could do vinifera 
um, and I put in a few acres of vinifera, and that winter it hit minus 18 Fahrenheit, you know, and crown gall erupted everywhere. It was a disaster, you know. But since then, there were two winters back-to-back. They were at minus 18, minus 12, and then since then, it hardly ever gets in the single digits anymore. So global warming has changed it tremendously. Uh, so they're able now to grow more vinifera because you know, we can figure out that they just did a lot better wine quality-wise. Mm-hmm. You know, the weather was challenging. One of the things that um, that I didn't like about growing grapes there is that there was so much pressure with, you know, we had powdery mildew, we had downy mildew, we had phomopsis, we had... Um, a black rot, you name it, two kinds of botrytis. So farming organically was not an option. Uh, at least it didn't seem like it for me, and that was always a high priority for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd grown up in a family where gardening was really big. I had my first garden by the time I was seven, you know, and uh, it was always uh, organically farmed, you know, and, and that just meant a lot to me in terms of purity of food and product and all that. So. Uh, that was one of the things that attracted me to Oregon. It's a much more hospitable mm-hmm. environment. You mentioned kind of you, you got into the distribution part a little bit later. Before that, before you had that experience with selling and distribution, tell me about selling wine, uh, New Jersey wine. How how did you, wh- what were your markets? How did you sell wine? Who was buying from you? And, and how, did that, how did it change as you were there? It was predominantly seller door, and it still is, you know. I mean... The thing that was appealing from that point of view is that within 100 miles, there were 15 million people, you know. So it wasn't too hard to get people out. And we were doing something new and different, and uh, and people were interested, mm-hmm. you know. New Jersey is the fifth, sixth largest wine-buying state mm-hmm. in the country. So, uh, you know, there's a big big market and if you could get them to come out on the weekend and buy some wine it worked mm-hmm. you know three tier uh, I was able to get into the three tier and had some success but mostly with fruit wine you know it, was, it wasn't really where I wanted to be in terms of my winemaking career mm-hmm. but we utilized that as a, as a revenue stream but most of it was cellar door sales Tell me about winemaking and about learning the process. You mentioned kind of your first experience in, in the, on the Russian River uh, and being immediately intrigued by it. What, what did you have to learn? How long did it take you to feel comfortable making, making wine, growing grapes, doing the whole process? Yeah, I mean, I'd done fine as an amateur winemaker getting my feet wet. But uh, when I started the winery, um, our first harvest was 83, and I hired a guy that had gotten a degree from UC Davis that just happened to be living down the road and his girlfriend and I were playing in a band together. It was completely, you know, serendipitous. And he was, you know, he was looking for work. So he came on and I learned a lot from him uh, on process, on chemistry, on, you know, all of that. And, um, and that helped an awful lot. And then I, I went to every single thing that Cornell and, and Penn State put on uh, in terms of educational programs. Mm-hmm. So they had some really good good uh, programs going, and I learned a lot through that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like a lot of guys my age at that time, like here in Oregon, just learn by doing, you know. Mm-hmm. So. 
as you started developing, you mentioned organic farming being something that was important to you and, and, yeah. and difficult to do where you were. What about on the winemaking side? Did you have a style in mind or a, a, a process in mind that you wanted to, to make or an end result that you were hoping for in the wines? Yeah, you know, I had grown up drinking Italian wine and um, European wine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd come of age in California, you know, uh, when I was in grad school there. And there was a short period where I was enamored with those very ripe kind of styles, but for the most part, I really liked European style wine. So that was something that um, I kind of, that was, that was my compass, you know, my stylistic compass. So tell me about, you mentioned uh, kind of coming into contact with Oregon wines as you started working with distribution. What were some of your early impressions of Oregon wines and winemakers as you started to get to know the industry a little bit? Well, for, for starters, I'd like to take credit for being, you know, very thoughtful, logical process, but it really wasn't. My oldest daughter, who uh, is this brilliant PhD in, in the world of environmental science and food processing and all that stuff, uh, elected to go to Reed College for her undergrad. And um, so in our wholesale house, and I, that's what I was doing at that time, we had a really good burgundy portfolio, and I was uh, responsible for, for a lot of that. So I was already tuned into Pinot Noir. So when I came out here to visit my daughter, um, I'm like, wow, they're growing Pinot Noir out here. What's this all about, you know? And then I just got swept away in the enthusiasm of the potential of Oregon, even though, you know, that was the early 90s and still finding its way. Um, You know, maybe there were 130 wineries at that time, something like that. But I just saw that there was a lot of potential here, and uh, they were trying to do something here that nobody else in the United States was doing, and I thought they could pull it off. Um, so that's when I started bringing back, um, you know, Montador wine, Ken Wright's wine, um, uh, Panther Creek before he was at Ken Wright, mm-hmm. and uh, who else did we had? We had Witness Tree. We had a nice little portfolio, and. Um, and it was fun, you know, I got to know the wines and I got to know the people and more and more I, I really was drawn toward, toward, uh, toward Oregon. Mm-hmm. The first, if you can remember, the, the first Oregon wines you tried, you mentioned potential. Mm-hmm. What was your impression of the actual wine? Was it, was it good yet? Was it, was it great? Like where, where was it on the scale for you? It was, it was, there were good ones and there were bad ones, you know. It was pretty erratic. I think at that time... You know, we do a lot better job now in understanding uh, how to manage the vineyards through different variations of weather conditions, um, and then how to manage that fruit in the winery. So there were some years that were spectacular and others that were less than good, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I saw that as a challenge, but that was something that could be overcome. Mm And what about the the people here? Was were they did they re, were they reminiscent of other wine regions to you, or was this was was there something unique about Oregon? Yeah, for sure. It was it was it was in its infancy, uh, but emerging. And there was a great deal of enthusiasm and and pride in what had been done, but humility and understanding that there was a long way to go, and um, and I I admired that. You know, I don't I don't um, I don't have much tolerance for big egos. You know, so. I didn't find that here at all, like in other some other regions. So I, I felt comfortable, and I was really attracted to kind of the collegial nature of the industry, you know, mm-hmm. at that time. It's still there. 
So let's talk about Montemore a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned kind of dipping your toe in the Montemore waters and ending up as the president. So yeah. I want to talk about your, uh, your, first, your first interactions with the place, your first impressions of the place. Uh, wh what were the wines like and what was the place like at the time when you first kind of came into contact with it? Um, very impressive. It was a big estate and I always felt that brands, so if I was looking for a brand for distribution, I felt that brands that had their own vineyards were really the best bet, you know, for a lot of regions, a lot of reasons. And, um, so, you know, it was a, it was a big, well-funded winery. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I thought the wines were lacking, um, and... The more I, you know, the more I got involved, the more I realized it was because of the viticulture. But um, there were some really brilliant spots, some really great wines in the early years. Mm -hmm. So the potential was there. Mm -hmm. And um, the the owners at that time recognized that they were they needed help, and they, you know, we saw eye to eye on that. Mm -hmm. So that made it kind of a fun, unusual relationship. Because I said, well, I can't move to Oregon. And they said, that's okay. <laughs> Just come when you can and do what you have to do. I'm like, okay. So it was a very uh, a relationship that worked for me personally. And um, I don't know, it just worked out. <laughs> so you mentioned wines lacking, and as you got into it, viticulture being kind of the culprit for that. Yeah. So first step, once you're officially, you're, the, you're hired in as vice president, you're, yep. you're not here all the time. Yep. What's your first step? First step was getting the vineyard in good shape. I mean, they had started down the right road, but, you know, there were catch wires installed and never utilized, so the vines were what we refer to as gorilla vines, you know, and there was lots of mildew when it would rain in September, and so just cleaning that whole thing up and um, and getting just a good viticulture program going because if you don't have the grapes, you're not going to make the wine, you know. So um, that's where I started, and the vineyard manager quit shortly after I started <laughs> kicking up dust, you know. Uh, and I was working with Jacques Tardieu, who was here at that time, and Jacques uh, kind of filled in for a while, um, you know, overseeing the vineyard operations because I wasn't here that much. But I started coming more frequently, and, and I was able to, because that's too much for, for one person, mm -hmm. to make all the wines and to mm -hmm. oversee the vineyards on this scale. So uh, I took over um, the vineyard management, and um, and then... Once the grapes started coming in better, we were able to make better wines. And then we started reviewing the winemaking processes, just like everybody else was, I guess, at that time, you know. And um, eliminating, you know, eliminating the, the parts of the, of the process that created more coarse, rustic kind of wines and looked for more refinement, more fruit expression, and... Um, and that got us only so far. Uh, and then that's when I started looking at um, kind of really refining how we grow and getting the vineyards into organic and, and eventually biodynamic to get more expression of, of place. And I think this is kind of interesting. Um, you know, in, in Oregon, everybody planted their own, you know, own rooted. And so Montenegro was planted in 82, 83 predominantly. 
and it was all sticks in the ground. And um, that all worked really well until, you know, in the mid-90s, they started selling fruit to the Obon Clement winery down on the central coast of California. Jim Clendenin would come up here and, and buy fruit for his wine and for another brand he, he was making, Isi Laba. And um, don't you know right where Jim would park his truck up on the hill there and put down his totes and fill them up with grapes was where the phylloxera started. So um, it was in 98 that we discovered the phylloxera, and that was the year I had started at Montanor. And, and it spread pretty quickly. Um, and that really drove me to understanding you know, why vines decline due to phylloxera and uh, ways to mitigate it using the power of nature, if you will. Um, and uh, we, started, we started working with uh, a lot of compost, whereas previous to that, you know, all the, the pumice from harvest was considered a waste product. You know, we were turning it into good, good fertilizer mm -hmm. and uh, working uh, very deliberately on building up the microbiome, especially mycorrhizal fungi that were needed to colonize around the roots of the vines to help them uh, protect themselves against the pathogenic fungi that were getting in and rotting so they could tolerate some phylloxera chewing without getting, a, let's, let's just say, a bad fungal infection you know, in the root zone. So that, that really um, was a, a motivating factor in, in driving hard into organic. Um, so that ha happened somewhere around 2001, I guess, was when we stopped using herbicides. And, um, and then I, I'd always, when I was back in wholesale, I'd, I'd seen, you know, as I was getting wines in uh, for distribution, there was always something really special about these biodynamic wines that we'd get in, especially from Burgundy and Rhone. And, you know, I would taste them like, well, that's good. And then I would see, oh, that's biodynamic. That's interesting. So the more that happened, the more it really intrigued me. And I, I wanted to know what, what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there, wasn't, there weren't very many places to find out. Um, and uh, through a friend of a friend, anyway, I found out about this this 12-month course that was offered at a little college in New York State where, where one of the pioneers of uh, um, biodynamic farming in the United States had his, his laboratories and experimental uh, gardens and all that. So I, I enrolled in that and took that class and got a really great education in the fundamentals of biodynamics and was able to come back here to Montanor and start trying it out. So that was in 2003, and um, we had a couple blocks that on paper should have been great, and they were always underperforming, and the wine was kind of ho-hum, and we did some biodynamic sprays on them and immediately saw a response. And, uh, and since then, those wines have been, those blocks have been part of the reserve program. You know, they're, it just responded so so well that I said, all right, we need to do this. So over the course of three years, we went from just 20 acres to, at that time, we were about 240, 260. Uh, so it took a few years to kind of get it all rolling. And then 
once we got it all integrated and the and the process is in place and and multiple years of farming that way we really saw an evolution in the uh, not only the way the vines looked and acted and performed they were performing better from a from just a purely functional point of view but the wines got more expressive mm-hmm. and at first we thought it was vintage variation and then we finally figured out it was expression of terroir mm-hmm. so we were actually achieving making that connection through that that intensive viticulture um so making the connection from site to the glass of wine which mm-hmm. had always been my my goal so that that time period covers when you you actually bought the property is that yeah correct? I, I bought the property at the end of 2005 yeah so by 2000 i started in 2003 and and the the owners were like, yeah, yeah, try whatever you want, but don't spend a lot of money, you know. And um, so I, I was able to really go at it. And by the 2006 season, hired a consultant uh, who was originally from Chateauneuf-de-Pop that came up and had, gave us some great advice on, on kind of turning around some vineyards that were not, uh, not in great shape and getting the whole place up to a whole different mm-hmm. level of quality and, and health. So, um, yeah, 2006 on, we were, and then we finally got certified in 2008, yeah. Obviously, it's a big property to be biodynamic, and it's, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe, still the biggest uh, single biodynamic vineyard around. Well, one of them. One, one yeah, of. Yeah. T- tell, me, tell me about the challenges of biodynamics at scale. Was it, was it, was it more than you expected? Was it difficult? What, what were the biggest kind of obstacles? It was easier than I expected. Uh, we have a great team um, that have been here in the vineyard that have been here sometimes, some of them 30 years, you know. Um, and um, they, their goal is to, to have a healthy vineyard to go grow good grapes. And um, what kind of surprised me was um, we, um, once I started, I... I I realized I needed to kind of share this information with our vineyard crew. Most everyone's primary language is Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish, you know. So I found this young woman from Panama who was very, she had been working at um, Josephine Porter Institute, doing a lot of work in biodynamics, making preparations and all that. Um, uh, and I hired her to do educational classes for our series of, I think, four or something. For our team and what surprised me was they were like oh yeah this makes really good sales this is what our parents used to do in Mexico you know so it was like they were and they were very happy to to get rid of the hazmat suits and not worry about what was being sprayed and um, you know it, the, our team really embraced the practices of biodynamics mm-hmm. so that made it that in itself made it a lot easier and then scaling up, we just needed bigger compost spreaders. You know, we had to build some stirring machines for the sprays, but that, you know, that was just mechanics. Mm-hmm. You mentioned seeing kind of immediate results in a, in, a, in a certain block. Tell me about once you kind of got all all biodynamic and had the full system running. Uh, was it as immediate? Did, did did you feel that the site was at that point producing better grapes, better wines immediately? Uh, no, it took a few years. You know, it's not like this panacea. But um, we did over the course of a few years, you know, you know, one of the challenges that 
uh, you can have in a vineyard is erratic vine size, right? And big ones crowding out the guys next door and you're out there hedging all the time and, you know, uneven uh, uh, fruit ripening and verasion and all that sort of stuff. And what we saw was um, that after a few years of the biodynamics, the vine size started becoming more uniform. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like the vineyard started working uh, as a community of vines rather than a bunch of individuals, you know. And so vine size became more uh, uniform. Hedging wasn't quite the, the, the big problem that had been before. We also started seeing more uniform verasion. Mm-hmm. So, and I had started a verjou project which we still do today, but I started that because we'd have so many green grapes that we'd go out and we'd harvest everything that was green when we were about 80% through verasion because there was that much difference. And um, we found that that, that change, uh, the change was that we'd have more uniform color change and we'd eventually have more uniform ripening, which eliminated some of the green flavors that we had been battling because um, you had some underripe grapes and overripe grapes, so that that uniformity of ripening really made a big difference, I think, in wine quality. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that literally the vines were more integrated into the site through the interaction with the biology in the soil, and we've been enhancing the biology in the soil through compost preparations and sprays and things there's just more of it and it was more vibrant and more alive and the vines were literally interacting through these mycorrhizal fungi and whatever um that there the expression of the place started showing in the glasses of wine and to me that was like the most exciting thing going you know that's like that's what we want to do as winemakers you know Mm -hmm. so we had almost inadvertently discovered a tool that made that work so were the vines the vines you were working with had you had you done replanting after phylloxera or were these still original vines that you were just managing we had planted in the late in in 99 and 2001 uh two blocks on the north corner uh with rootstock but other than that everything was own rooted so um you know and i'd done some in where we had those old-fashioned wide spacing, like where you have seven foot across, you know, wide. We did uh, some layering, so we'd bring canes down under, and then so we'd go to three and a half foot spacing. We did some kind of crazy things like that that worked out. And in some spots I felt where the soil was deep enough, I didn't have a lot of revenue, you know. I had a lot of, uh, a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of will, but not a lot of money. So uh, when I planted replanted some of the older blocks if I felt the soils were uh, of the type that could allow suppression of phylloxera we planted on own on own rooted again because that's all I had money for and it worked those vineyards are still doing fine you know so that was like 10 15 years ago so yeah kind of like a wild crazy ride here <laughs> what was what was when you started planting biodynamically? What was Oregon's biodynamic scene like? Was there anybody else doing biodynamic at the time? Yeah, Cooper Mountain was the first, and uh, I remember going to uh, right when I started taking that class. I went to a, a session that they did, which was kind of inspiring, and then um, I, I remember 
oh, I can't remember his name now. Some fellow that had worked in Switzerland did some classes for people, but I had already en enrolled in the in the thing mm -hmm. at the Pfeiffer Center, so mm -hmm. I didn't take those. But once I got here and was really engaged and had bought the property, um, there was a small working group, you know, Doug Tunnell and Mike Etzel and, and uh, some other folks, and we would get together and um, just kind of study and talk and talk about what we were doing and visit each other's wineries. And that lasted for a couple, three years and then sort of faded away. Um, but, you know, now that it's what's really encouraging, there's a lot of young farmers that uh, not only grapes, but a lot of vegetable farmers and, you know, some some dairy people and get together regularly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's a... Um, there's a building of, of biodynamic activity and, and awareness. And, you know, over the years, we hosted several workshops here, bringing in people that um, were great educators and very knowledgeable and having sessions here at Montador for people. So that, that worked. Matter of fact, we're going to do another one this summer. Um, so I've tried on my own to help uh, kind of spread the word, you know, how have you seen the the kind of the reputation, I guess, of biodynamics change since you've been here? I, I mean, we've interviewed a lot of people over the years, a lot of varying opinions on it, but it seems to be much more commonplace and accepted now than when we started. Yeah. Is that your experience as well? Well, full disclosure, uh, for the past three years, I've been uh, president of Demeter USA, which is the <laughs> <laughs> which is the certifying agency for all the farms uh, and processors in the United States of biodynamic farms. So I've had both feet in that, you know, and uh, we just launched, um, we merged with the Biodynamic Association. It took us almost three years to do it and just launched this January, the new new organization uh, called the uh, Biodynamic Demeter Alliance, which has brought together the Biodynamic Association and Demeter, the certifying agency. And uh, we're going to be, well, I'm no longer, my board term ended and I was like, Hallelujah. <laughs> it was like a full-time job aside from this. But we've crossed the finish line seven days before my term ended, so I felt very happy about saying, okay, guys, good luck. <laughs> but uh, I'm still very active. I'm, I'm working with them. We're going to be doing um, uh, some educational seminars. I have a friend in, in Italy who is uh, uh, probably the foremost consultant in biodynamics in Italy, and he, he runs some really high-quality advanced biodynamic seminars so we're going to start bringing them to the United States so I'm still very active in all mm -hmm. this stuff in terms of awareness you know uh, it's unfortunately been like this little club and which is not good from a business point of view so in this new organization the alliance that we formed mm -hmm. there are going to be three uh, divisions if you will of activity one which is the certification agency the one which will be the educational outreach portion. And then the third, which is a new creation, is going to be for economy and trade. And we'll be working on, uh, you know, building mm -hmm. consumer awareness, you know, marketing and public relations, and also working uh, for the vegetable growers and, and processors for products on, on more appropriate and effective uh, channels of distribution. You know, if you look in, at Germany, the biodynamic Demeter certified products are considered like the, the gold standard in mm -hmm. food 
you know, you want to get the best stuff, you buy the Demeter stuff. And, you know, they, they have trouble filling the market because it's so much in demand. So I know the potential is there. Just we have to wake up the American public to, to understand what it is that, that, that biodynamic farming is and the quality of the products. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So take me through the the growth of Montenor after you after you purchased it. Especially, um, you had already had installed a lot of things at that point. You had biodynamic yeah. coming, you had organic, you had biodynamic mm -hmm. coming. Once you took over as owner uh, and you had that in process, how did it grow from there? What were what were your kind of long term goals, short term long term goals, and and how did the the, the upcoming years go? Well, you know. Um I'm a pretty nuts and bolts kind of guy, you know, and I'm not big into luxury and all that, so I've never really attracted to that end of the uh, of the the, the market mm -hmm. um, for better or for worse, you know, I have no judgments on that. So but I say that because my uh, my approach was colored by that by my life, you know. So what I wanted to produce here at Montenor was uh, a wine that was fairly priced, it was affordable, um, that we could, you know, we had the capacity to have enough volume to, to cover our needs from a revenue point of view. So part of that was uh, getting um, good broad distribution and that was something I was good at. So um, I had been building the, uh, I had been building up the market for Montenor prior to purchasing it and then I just continued on that so we currently in 45 states or whatever mm -hmm. it is uh, with good distributors I've built up a really good distributor network um, you know with with kind of mid-size where we just weren't you know fighting the 800 pound gorillas of the California wine world but we weren't dealing with little people where you had to worry about getting paid or whether they're top salesmen quit or whatever you know so kind of the mid-range mm -hmm. and um, I think that has really you know been part of the success of Montenor that we have a great distribution network and a lot of good distribution partners that we've had relationships for a long time um, that coupling it with a really um, a real dedication to always improving the product you know always over delivering if somebody pays $20 for a bottle of wine, I want it to taste like it's $30, you know? That that was part of the philosophy, to over-deliver on quality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy to say, um, but, you know, if you keep at it, you, you can achieve it, and I feel for the most part we have. So we have very loyal customer base. Did you have a, a size in mind for for um, amount of wine produced in a year? Did you have a, a did you have a kind of penciled out for how much you wanted to make and how how long you wanted to, till you wanted to get there? Yeah, I, you know when I when I got here, we were well. It was all over the lot. It was you know thirty five to seventy five thousand cases, depending on what they got and you know did they crop it at four tons an acre or whatever. <laughs> so we 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 brought down the yields. Uh, to kind of a balanced um, level for quality. And uh, I, I felt, you know, kind of max would be about 50,000 cases because once you get beyond that, then you have to engage in a whole other set of activities and other scales. And um, and I think, you know, once you cross 50,000, you better be at 200,000, you know. <laughs> so I didn't have the capital to do that or the will, really. I thought, you know, I could make a really nice living at forty to fifty thousand cases and pay our people well and you know 
a nice life. So that's mm-hmm. where we stuck. You mentioned people. I'm curious about you build, building a team here. You mentioned you had a team of, 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 of vineyard workers who were excited to do biodynamics. Mm. Uh, when you started to grow and hire, what were you what were you looking for as you built your team here? Um, people that were interested in putting out a really good product and and uh, didn't have big egos. You know, it's people that we could work well together with that we could have a nice collegial, almost like family environment, which we did, you know, and, um, and, um, you know, you got to come here every day. So you want to be happy when you show up and people that enjoyed their work. So that was, that was it. And of course, uh, skill sets were important, but I, I never really, uh, mandated that you had to have the degree, you know, it was more about what could you do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, for, you know, you don't always hit, but, for the most part, that works for us. So tell me about the next the next shift at Montenor then. Obviously, you owned for a long time. Yeah. What was the, the next shift for you then? I realized that the company needed a lot of capital to keep up with the rest of the world and to renew what, you know, was getting older and all that. And um, I wasn't at a place in my life where I wanted to take on a lot of debt. And my daughter and I, Kristen, had been running it uh, together, and she wasn't interested in a lot of debt. You know, <laughs> we just didn't want to go there. It changes the whole dynamic. Instead of running a winery, then you're 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 chasing dollars, and you have to develop other skill sets, and mm-hmm. it's not not what I wanted for my career. Mm-hmm. So the alternative was to find partners, um, which we did. We were we had been approached by a few companies and some of them really big and I could see they would just swallow up the brand and our team would lose their jobs and so that wasn't that wasn't what we wanted to do Mm -hmm. and we were very fortunate to um to kind of run into this gentleman Jay Ackley from up in Seattle who um just a good smart businessman that saw the long-term benefit of being in the the beverage industry the wine beverage industry and um after a long courtship, we decided to, to team up, and he bought majority interest in the winery and put in the capital that was needed, and we've been able to, to really refine what we'd already been doing mm-hmm. and uh, expand. So now we bought um, a really great vineyard mm-hmm. um, just above where Jadot Residence is, and um, tremendous fruit off of that vineyard. And then we bought another... 177 acres next door to Willikenzie on that ridge there and we're planting that out and uh, so we're you know we're we're not growing volume that much but we're the, the quality of what we're producing is getting better and better every year and allowing us to uh, increase our prices and mm-hmm. to just make for a healthy company so so at that point how did your role change um, I don't have to worry about payroll anymore, you know, which is a wonderful thing. Um, uh, Jay's son, Brandon, uh, is, is really good at all that and a good young business person. So he handles a lot of the business end of things now, and I can focus more on viticulture, winemaking. I do, I still, you know, have a lot of relationships out in the marketplace, so I'll do market visits just kind of key market visits, do a lot of presentations and education on, on our farming practices and um, 
you know, related to biodynamics because it's been such a big part of our brand identity. Mm-hmm. So I do that sort of stuff and just kind of keep an eye on things, um, work closely with my partners on long-term planning. Mm-hmm. And with the new vineyard specifically, was that, you mentioned kind of the, the capital needed for growth. Was that something you saw was needing more vineyard land in the area? To, to, to and, and if so, what about these particular lots excite, excited you? Well, there was a few different things. Um, one was that, you know, we're here in this, on this spot, which is uh, a very unique spot. It's, you know, now it's part of the Twalton Hills AVA that I worked with our, our neighbors to, to create. And um, has a very specific profile because of the, the Missoula flood soils that we have. And um, it also, you know, we have very subtle but different climatic conditions than different parts of the valley. And I felt it, it made a lot of sense to have vineyards in other parts of the valley where you have different soil types, you know, maybe different weather patterns slightly, um, to kind of not only broaden the palette, if you will, mm-hmm. of the colors we have to work with when we're creating wines, but also kind of hedge our bets in terms of uh, you know, vin- vintage conditions and whatnot. So that was something you know, so the two vineyards we bought are in Yamhill Carlton, but on opposite ends of Yamhill Carlton, one way over in the hills, you know, on the Western Hills, and the other right up in the heart of it, you know, with the real classic Willikensee soils and all that. So um, that was one of the goals. And you mentioned already, you're already excited about the fruit. Uh, what, are kind of, what are your kind of early impressions or early returns from those new sites? Oh, it's really interesting. Um, you know, one thing about our 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 wines off of the home site here in the Twelton Hills is they're they're uh, on the savory side and spicy, and you know that can be really interesting and intriguing. But in uh, in some vintages, I feel like maybe they're lacking a little fruit to to support that or to balance that. So if you get down to Yamhill Carlton, there's this rich, you know dark berry you know almost plum time uh, type of character um that that um can support the savory uh character of the wines up here um but only in the reds i think the whites from up in these these missoula flood soils are really exceptional and i'm glad we have them you know um but then if you compare um central uh, Yamhill Carlton to that coastal area that's really interesting because the soils in that vineyard which we call Tidal Star uh, there's a lot of marine basalt uh, mixed in with this marine sedimentary soil and just gives the wines a really distinctive um, kind of structural almost like a a mineral graphite kind of quality. I don't know how to explain it, but you taste it. So there's a uniqueness to it that I think is really dynamic and uh, and desirable. You know, people really like those wines. So I want to ask you about uh, 2020 for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody's favorite year to talk about. Uh, kind of two two big parts of 2020 uh, that mm-hmm. affected the industry. Let's talk about the pandemic first. Uh, March of 2020, as things started to kind of close down. What were the initial reactions for you and for the, the team here to, to get through, and how did you kind of pivot that year to, to, get, to get by? Well, 
unlike a lot of our neighbors, you know, we were just under 25% cellar door sales. And so we had a very strong uh, three-tier program. You know, it was really tough on our, our DTC folks um, from a tasting room point of view. On the flip side of that, our wine club grew like crazy. So that was good. And, um, you know, we had a pretty nice balance of on-premise, off-premise out there in the market. Mm-hmm. But because we're not uh, very expensive, you know, we're kind of moderate premium price, um, we, we could have appeal in the, in the off-premise shops. And uh, because we're not heavily uh, engaged in um, grocery store chains or anything like that, it's more independent shops, mm-hmm. we were able to make that shift from on-premise, which died completely, to the off-premise. And um, we were revenue neutral between 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. So I was very wow. proud of that. Um, you know, the, it was hard. We had to shut down the taste room for I don't know how many months, you know. Um, but then we gradually opened up outdoors when the weather was good. You know, appointment only, separated. You could only have so many people. But that at least kept our, our DTC mm-hmm. seller door sales program going. And, um, and we got better at wholesale, I think. You know, so we're, you know, we're growing nicely. We're having... We're having a wonderful year this year, and we had an up year last year, so we bounced back from the pandemic in pretty good shape, I think. Good, good. Yeah. The other part of 2020, obviously, was harvest. Uh, so yeah. tell, tell me about the, 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 the effects of 2020's harvest fires on you here, and, and again, how you sort of managed it. It was really interesting, because the first fires were right over the hill, and um, so it was... It was southeast, uh, southwest. The, the fires are southwest of us, right? And I live a mile that way, so I was between where the fires were in the Montefiore Vineyard here, you know. And we had that weird set of um, wind conditions mm-hmm. that came in out of the the northeast, right? So I I would stand in my backyard and I'd look towards Montenor and I would see blue sky, and I would look in the opposite direction and it would be brown and orange and rolling and it was apocalyptic looking you know and um, those fires only lasted a short while and they were able to get them under control and then the fires broke out down around Salem and right over here on um, on Bald Peak mm-hmm. area mm-hmm. but at the same time the prevailing winds shifted to their normal northwest so they were blowing most of the smoke that way so yeah, we had smoky days, but it wasn't like our neighbors to the to the to the east of us that really got hammered. So, long story short, we we had two lots of wine that we just didn't want, right? And but they were once they were ROed, we were, had no problem selling it to other people who didn't have any wine. Mm-hmm. And um, the twenties are really nice, but there's just a small vintage, mm-hmm. you know. So, what we bottled, we really like. We didn't make any single vineyard wines, just not because the quality wasn't there, but because the reputation of the vintage, we just knew it was going to be not good. Hard sell. So, yeah, hard sell. So we just put everything into our, our you know, our regular products. And mm-hmm. um, we did okay, you know. Just the volume was small and unfortunate because 21 volume was small too mm-hmm. due to the extreme weather. And, the, you know, we had some hail here in, in, during during bloom. 
and a fruit set, and then those 115 degree days didn't help us at all, you know. So it's been a tough couple of years. Mm-hmm. But what we put in the bottle was really good, <laughs> just not enough of it, you know. So you brought up the the new AVA here, the Walton Hills AVA. Yeah. Um, tell me about the process for that, the 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 kind of the 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 impetus for mm-hmm. it, and then the process of actually getting it done. Well, you know, I had. I had uh, created an AVA back in New Jersey, um, whenever that was, 1985 or something, um, right when the AVA thing started. Mm-hmm. So I knew the process, and we were successful and got it created, you know. And, um, and I remember when Dave Adelsheim called me up here and said, hey, we're, uh, we're doing this Chehalem Mountain AVA, and... We don't feel like your vineyard is really part of it, but you're close enough and you're big enough. You know, how do you feel about it? You know, would you want to be included in it or not? You know, and I said, no, I don't think we should be in it. You know, we're very different than Chehalem Mountain, and we have a whole different set of conditions over here. Um, and that just came off the top of my head, you know, but I just felt like the right thing. And so after that, I always kept thinking, we should do something. We should do something. And um, it took a lot of years, and I think Alfredo Apolloni kind of poked me one day and said, why don't we do something, you know? So um, we did and uh, worked together on it. Um, um, and, and worked with, other, with our neighbors and Mike over at, uh, oh gosh, David Hill Winery mm-hmm. was, worked, did a lot of work with us. And um, we just, I knew the process. So I, I kind of, those guys did a lot of the heavy lifting and drawing the maps and uh, visiting people. And, and I just did all, wrote the narrow of it and wrote the, and I knew the parameters that they needed to, in order to recognize that this region had, uh, had distinctive qualities to, enough to be a separate ABA. So between the three of us, we, um, we put together a really good packet and it, it got through. Mm-hmm. So, what are the distinctive characteristics? Well, for one thing, the entire AVA is all uh, Missoula Flood Los. Um, now the Laurelwood District is only Missoula Flood Los, and we're the only two districts in the state that have that. Um, and the interesting thing about the Tualatin Hills, so it, it's in the watershed of the Tualatin River. Mm-hmm. It's coming from the west over to the Willamette. And it... Um, it's kind of like a open horseshoe with open to the to the east. Mm-hmm. So as the the winds were blowing, that that silt that it's that had formed from the the dry silt from the Missoula floods, it blew it up into the hills and got caught in this horseshoe. So um, this whole band in this horseshoe of uh, the ABA is all this Missoula flood loss. You know, different series, but all mm-hmm. the same kind of laurelwood stuff. And um, and so we we just picked the parameters of two hundred feet, which below that you know it's not so good for grapes, and thousand feet, keeping it in keeping with the Willamette Valley uh, border mm-hmm. elevation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the soil was was one thing, and then the other thing, there are a couple of things, the because the prevailing winds come out of the north northwest area. Um, 
the coastal range is significant. So it, we're the opposite of Van Duzer Quarter, mm-hmm. where that coastal range dips down and there's a lot of maritime. We have the highest peaks here, so we have almost a more continental, if you will, effect where we're, we're cooler in the spring and warmer in the fall. And that's easily documented through weather records. And the same thing is we're in a rain shadow um, because of those mountains here in this, this part of uh, uh, the valley. Mm-hmm. So we have less rainfall here than, say, if you go east. So there's unique conditions that way. And then I think you know, anyone who participated in Pinot Camp over the years recognizes that these soils have a distinctive character in the glass. So mm-hmm. that was part of it, too. And there's a lot of, I can't remember off the top of my head, but we were kind of surprised at how many vineyards are in this ABA. Um, there's a lot of grape growing up in here. Mm-hmm. So With the... With that, have you seen what, what? What was the reasoning behind wanting the AVA? In addition to besides just being characteristic, was was there a marketing bent to you to it for you? Was there something else? And have you seen any returns on on it yet? Yes, of course, there's a marketing thing. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that was the main motivation. We felt like we had something unique, and we wanted recognition in the marketplace, and a, and a uh, a way to talk about our wines that was distinct from the rest of the Willamette Valley. So that was a, a big driver, and I think you know that's, that's half of the motivation on any ABA. Um, I don't think there's been a, a big uptick in recognition or sales. You know, it's just in its infancy. Mm-hmm. We need to form an organization. We need to start beating our own drum. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. But just creating the ABA... Uh, among that small sliver of consumers that really pay attention to that stuff, we've seen interest. Mm-hmm. So the germ is there, the potential is there. Now it's uh, now it just needs to be developed more. So we talked we've talked a little bit about kind of the evolution of Oregon's industry, but I, I'm curious. You've you've been around it a long time, uh, both in it and and from and with and from without it. Uh, what are the biggest sort of changes in Oregon that you've seen? Uh, obviously, size the size has grown a lot. But in addition to size, what, what else has changed about the Oregon wine industry? What does it look like today to you compared to when you first saw it? Well, when I first saw it, you know, I'd go around to, to shops and like, oh, I didn't know they made wine in Oregon, you know, literally. And I heard a lot of that. Um, and then the, the ones that were more savvy, yeah, it can be good, but it's erratic, you know. That, so that was the original when I first got in, involved in the industry. We were fighting that battle, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, I think there was always an aspiration for the high price point, super premium, but it took a while to get there, and mm-hmm. you know, sort of fits and starts. So now I, I think, uh, you know, the the mean price for Willamette Valley wine is a whole lot higher than than we any of us would have expected maybe you know um, and of course the growth there's a lot of uh, you know garagists and there's a lot of virtual brands that that sort of it's ancillary and they come and go you know but the the core group of brands that are growing grapes and you know doing oh, my prejudice you know, doing it the right way um, you know, has grown and it's, you know, now you're into the second generation and that seems really great and healthy and, uh, you know, there's a dynamism in that, you know, like, uh, in that we're, we're really here and we're here to stay and, 
and it's a we're a real wine region, you know. Crossing that fifty year mark was pretty significant, you know, and I think we're we have you know, I travel a lot, um in Europe mostly and uh we have we have an international reputation, we really do. And it's a good one, mm-hmm. you know. So that's I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud to be part of it. What about as you look ahead for Oregon wine? Uh, obviously, com- coming out of a couple of rough years, uh, what uh, is next? What, what, what are we looking at? Yeah, I'm not worried about the rough years. Um, a little worried about global warming, you know. And I think we're going to see the, the, uh, the premium vineyards um, shifting closer to the coast, you know, more into the hills, higher elevations, things like that. Um, I don't think we're going to be abandoning Pinot Noir anytime soon. Um, we still do really, really well. And there's other parts of the world that are warmer than we are that produce good Pinot Noir. So I think we'll be okay that way. But it'll shift. Um, I think some of, you know, some of the vineyards on the eastern side, it's just going to get too hot. But that's, that's my own observation. Um, I think our reputation is going to continue to grow. And I think... Willamette Valley, um, at some point in the not too distant future, will will have, the, you know, the reputation like Napa Valley does, just for Pinot Noir. We're already partway there, mm-hmm. and um, the industry is going to change. I think more money is going to come in. It'll get a little more corporate, unfortunately, but I think uh, the basis of family farms and family-owned organ- operations is gives us a really good foundation so I, I think I only see good things for, for Oregon wine obviously a lot of you mentioned corporate a lot of a lot of money coming in in the in, in recent years have you seen the industry change even just in the last five ten years have you seen it change in, in terms of collegiality in terms of uh, the kind of communal work that had brought it here or does it still feel that way to you it still feels that way I mean uh, you know when Jackson family came in, we were all kind of nervous. They've been a great neighbor, you know, and of course their their business model is such that they respect the individual properties that they have, so that helps an awful lot. Um, you know, I haven't seen you know any eight hundred pound gorillas come in. Uh, we did have that uh, little period with Copper Cane and all of that, and um, he's back in California now, so that's good. Um, we don't need that kind of an industry. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, everyone is land-based. They respect the fact that you know wine comes from grapes, and that's very <laughs> fundamental and very important. And that we're all working hard towards the same goal. So mm-hmm. there's not a you know I talk to colleagues from California, and they, you know they often talk about kind of a cutthroat attitude among wineries in their own regions. You know we don't have that. I I never experienced that. You know mm-hmm. yeah we're competitive. We're just, you know, that's kind of nature of being a business. But nobody hesitates to work together and, and benefit, think, do things that will benefit the, the region in general. It's a nice feeling. And it's a wonderful community to work in. What about the future here at Montenor? Uh, what's, what's coming next here? Any projects on the horizon or, or, or more of the same? Yeah, we're, we're going to be moving to a larger winery. Uh, a more efficient winery space um, yet to be determined you know it might be on the Laughlin Road property it might be elsewhere mm-hmm. we're working on that project now trying to find locations for that um, we still don't know what our new vineyard 
property we still haven't finished planting it out you know it'll probably end up being around 120 acres planted we're at about 75 right now so we don't know what that wine tastes like you know we'll make a few barrels this year for the first time that's very exciting and of course nothing happens fast in the wine world right so it's kind of a process um we've we've launched uh, a new brand of um of lower price wine that's you know some out of here mm-hmm. some that we purchase you know from from grow, other growers or bulk mm-hmm. to fulfill that that lower price by the glass business that we've kind of moved up from so we don't want to lose it and um, you know it's a I mean and people need to be able to buy a $15 bottle of wine on Wednesday nights you know so we're happy to sell it to them so that's a completely separate brand called Borealis complete different identity and we just launched that this month. You know? oh, wow. And then we also, um, we have a tremendous winemaking team and uh, that love, they've been here for years, you know, and they love being here. And um, so to put it bluntly, I want to capitalize on that skill, you know. So we've slowly been developing relationships with uh, Washington growers. And uh, last year we launched a, a brand, um, of Washington wines, uh, Cabernet, Chardonnay, and uh, Red Blend, mm-hmm. called Cataclysm, that celebrates um, the Missoula flood again. You know, mm-hmm. based on that book, Cataclysms of the Columbia, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really gotten some great response and doing well in the market so far. So you know, we're we're keeping Montenor. Um, we're, we want to hold on to our our land based integrity of Montenor. But we want to grow the business, mm-hmm. so we, we're creating these ancillary tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, Montenor is is a brand that's from our vineyards with high quality farming. You know, over delivering to a loyal customer base. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. We want to keep it that way. What about for yourself? Uh, anything on the horizon uh, outside of outside of wine, or anything you're looking forward to? Well, you know, I'm 72 years old, um, so I'm thinking a lot about that, right? I have a little five-acre farm that my wife and I are, uh, she's a retired landscape architect, and, you know, we, the two of us uh, get great joy out of gardening and farming. We have a little little vineyard over there that I make wine for, for the family, you know, and send the rest of them over here to Montenor. Um, I think that's going to take up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love to sail. We have a sailboat on the Columbia, so in the summers when we can get away from the farm, we do a lot of sailing. I play music, you know, regularly, daily. Um, cook, grandchildren, <laughs> looking forward to more time for reading and hmm? contemplation. You know, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But so far, that's what it looks like, you know. And revisiting, you know, I have family still in Italy, and we have a little house where my dad grew up that I have with my siblings. So spending some time up there is really fun and uh, just different and, and good way to spend some time too. So that's, that's what I see for myself. I don't see, I don't see stepping away from the winery anytime soon. We're doing too many fun things and uh, it's just really fun. You know, it's fun to see uh, the, 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 there's a beautiful cycle in the wine world of this annual cycle of, 
of the spring and then the fall harvest and the winemaking and then you do it again and you do it again and each year has its own personality and, and that's another lovely thing about Oregon you know we have we really do have vintages so that I really enjoy uh, you know um, all these new vineyard projects are really fun and I work very closely with our viticulturists you know trying to be creative and not just put in grapes and VSP and you know just try to figure out how to do it you know we want to think before we put one vine in the ground we're trying to anticipate what's the best way to grow it based upon the site and the soil and all the other conditions and variety and so we're trying to be get really creative to maximize uh, quality as well as as um, you know being a good business investment mm -hmm. so kind of the whole picture mm -hmm. so those things are fun and I'll continue to be engaged in all that and, other than that, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> sounds like it sounds like a lot. So I should keep you going. Well, yeah. all the questions I have for you. Okay. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Oh, I think I rambled enough. You know, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your sure. time for sharing your stories with us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Oh, super. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.